Welcome to this week's extra-large-sized episode of Talos Takes. Today we have the audio of our recent live stream celebrating Independence Day in Ukraine. A lot of uh, great folks from Talos and Cisco Secure got together to talk about our work in Ukraine to keep critical infrastructure online there, talk about the current security threats they're facing, uh, and generally discuss how we're trying to help support Cisco employees and the people of Ukraine. Hello, and thank you for joining this live Talos update on the 24th of August, which is also Independence Day of Ukraine. Uh, this is the day when Ukraine's parliament vowed to separate from the Soviet Republic in 1991, and this day has been commemorated on the 24th of August every year since. It is also now six months since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia began. Now, Ukrainian infrastructure has largely stayed operational and in most cases has exceeded expectations. This seems to have baffled most pundits, but for those who have been working in Ukraine for many years now, it's no surprise. Ukrainians have worked tirelessly over the years to ready themselves for this eventuality. So with that in mind, we wanted to dig a little bit deeper on our time in Ukraine what we found when we got there, and how we've witnessed the Ukrainian people transform their cybersecurity capabilities while seemingly being constantly attacked by a cyber world power. So to do that, it is a pleasure to welcome three colleagues from Cisco Talos to join me for this discussion. Firstly, we have Dima Kortsevin, a senior threat intelligence researcher who is part of our Ukraine team, and will talk about um, his experience on the ground in the region. We also have JJ Cummings, National Intelligence Principal, and Ashley Benj, Strategic Intelligence Lead, both of whom are a key part of our defense of Ukrainian infrastructure and have also orchestrated and managed our 24-7 threat hunting units. We also wanted to touch on how the changes that the people in Ukraine made years ago um, are paying dividends now during the war. Um, and we also wanted to update you on the types of cyber threats that we are observing. Um, so if you have any questions for our panel, um, do add them in the comments and we will do our very best to answer as many of those as possible. So before we get to that, today is uh, Independence Day of Ukraine. So Dima, I want to ask you, first of all, um, what does this day mean, mean for you? Welcome to the panel. Uh, greetings, everyone. So uh, strive not to be a success, but uh, rather to be of value. The words that uh, Einstein once said. Uh, independence is uh, not an extra day off, but a value that should be used uh, for the benefit of every citizen of our country. Um, independence is the way independence uh, lives in every person. Uh, if we are independent, it means that we are free. That is, uh, we live and uh, not exist. Uh, the same goes for the state. Uh, independence of the state is uh, when we have the possibility to develop the state uh, as we want and uh, not as we are told. When we have a real own history and not a twisted one. When we speak our native Ukrainian language and uh, not a hostile language. And now there is a war. When there is a war in Ukraine, on the ground of Ukraine, the most uh, important task of our people is to preserve our Ukrainian independence so that uh, we, uh, our children, grandchildren, uh, and all future generations of Ukrainians uh, could live and uh, build our state based on national traditions and uh, core democratic values. 
independence is primarily a way, not a condition. Uh, I believe that we will overcome all the difficulties on this way. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dima. Um, so for our audience who are who are watching us, um, it is yeah, it is six months since the invasion began. And I was wondering, Ashley, could you recap for our audience the major the major timeline and the major incidents from from when the invasion began? And so at this point, uh, given the the heightened level of activity, we went ahead and uh, founded our uh, task force, Task Force Slava Ukraini, uh, in order to sort of assist these critical infrastructure defenders uh, in the Ukraine, because we've seen such a barrage of attacks, uh, even prior to the most recent invasion. So since then, we've seen a number of other supply chain attacks. We'll discuss these later on in the live stream. But really, um, if you're not familiar with the history of this region and this conflict, this has been going on for quite a long time, even years uh, before uh, this most recent invasion. And so as a result of that, Talos has actually been in region uh, for about six years since 2016 uh, to support these efforts. And uh, in 2022 has really strengthened our support uh, with our 24-7 our hunting operations. Great. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, we lost a little bit of sound early on in the timeline, but that's OK, because we're uh, we are going to start um, with uh, with our discussion around uh, 2015, um, one one of the first major attacks in Ukraine that drew international attention, which was the, the dark energy attack, which you talked about. Um, so, JJ, would you mind just recapping that a little bit and then talk about um, you know what we found in Ukraine when we began working with them uh, closely from a defensive and an architecture perspective? Yeah, certainly. Um, <clears throat> so as Ashley had mentioned, uh, we we started working with Ukraine roughly six years ago now, um, just uh, just after the the Black Energy Two attacks that occurred in in 2015. Um, we did provide some assistance and and some research efforts, uh, albeit remotely, um, in terms of the 2015 attacks of Black Energy. Um, and then certainly in Destroyer, uh, when that occurred in 2016, we were we were in country uh, providing assistance directly. Um, not Petya 2017 and, and numerous events since then. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, one of the reasons we chose to go into Ukraine, frankly, um, and, you know, I wouldn't have said this ago. A number of, a number of people on this, uh, this panel have, have already heard me say this a few times, but I probably would not have said this uh, seven months ago. Um, but, you know, since the events uh, over the last six months and the, the invasion uh, of Russia into Ukraine uh, on the 24th of, of February uh, of this year, I, I'm happy to say, or I'm not happy to say, but we certainly went with the intent to, um, our primary intent was to help the Ukrainian people. Um, our secondary intent was to, to better understand the Russian adversary, frankly, right? Um, and that's... Uh, you know, from a strategic perspective, <clears throat> Russia has always picked on Ukraine. Um, they are um, they are always in the target, right? Uh, or in, in the sights, I should say, uh, being targeted by Russia, unfortunately. Um, I mean, ever since uh, Ukraine left Russia, uh, or excuse me, left <laughs> the Soviet Republic in uh, 91, it's been attack after attack. Um both kinetic, not necessarily large scale all the time, uh, as well as cyber uh, attack. And, and it happens repeatedly. So it only makes sense, um, first and foremost, to help uh, 
a sovereign nation that is fighting for its independence. Um, and it only serves also to help the greater good to better understand um, the the big bully that they're fighting all the time, right? Um, so <clears throat> kind of as a result of that, we've, we have taken away a lot in terms of knowledge uh, of both the adversary uh, and also of defensive uh, capabilities and thoughts and ideologies. Um, the Ukrainian people are a very resilient people, right? Uh, and I think, you know, certainly I'll be happy to talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but we've seen a lot of crazy things uh, happen from a from a good and a bad perspective, right? We, we've seen the amazing, again, the amazing resiliency and strength of the Ukrainian people um, that they have developed over the years because they have been bullied so much, right? Um, and, and that's kind of how it happens. You either step up to your bully <laughs> and you learn from, from what the bully is doing to you and you adapt uh, and ultimately you overcome. Uh, and that is certainly what Ukraine has done to date, right, uh, is, is stand up to. And um, by almost all accounts, uh, do a much better job than was initially anticipated. Uh, and again, I think I'll talk a little bit more uh, about that later. Um, but I think um, I think that pretty much covers, you know, from from that perspective, what we've seen, and then kind of a, a brief touch on the history as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you for saying that. And that's definitely the one of the main reasons why we wanted to do this event um, is that we wanted to demonstrate and talk about the resiliency of the Ukrainian people. And um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's certainly baffled some people as to you know why um, that, that they're able to you know stand up. But um, you know, for, for for us, it's 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 of no no surprise. Um, I wondering, JJ, if you just talk a little bit more about um, going back to our kind of early days, um, working closely in partnership. Um, what are the some of the the recommendations that we made at the time, and how were they received, and how and how were they implemented? Yeah, certainly. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, you, you know, early on when we first went to Ukraine. Uh, around six years ago now, they had started to develop more um, resiliency kind of on their own already, again, just as a result of having to respond to uh, Russia all the time. Um, there were certainly a few places where we recommended additional capabilities and protections uh, and, and visibility, right, um, in terms of uh, things like endpoint visibility in terms of collecting as much data as you can possibly collect for the, um, and, and, and I would say this not just about Ukraine, I would say this just to general uh, government corporation out there, but in the, um, in the event that, or I should say when an event occurs, the more information and data that you have to be able to forensically examine, the more you're going to be able to understand about what occurred and then develop defensive mechanisms, right, to, to um, put in place to keep that from occurring again in the future. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to say, um, from, a, from a kind of a selfish perspective, I'd love to say, oh, we went in and we told them all of these amazing things and they implemented them. But if I'm being honest, uh, in, in a lot of cases, they were doing a pretty good job. Um, 
And again, that's due in large part to being picked on all the time by Russia, right? Um, so, uh, you know, Russia almost was its own worst enemy in that way, I guess, as I think about that in, a, in kind of a funny light. Um, <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, putting, just continuing to put more defensive measures in place that are, um, that are measured and well-planned out defensive measures, not just things to check boxes, which is a, a thing that they largely did in Ukraine, right? They weren't checking boxes, I want to be clear. They were largely putting things in place for the actual purpose they were intended and not just checking boxes, right? Understanding what a tool did, what its purpose was, and how it actually solved a need for them. Um, kind of a second piece that they're doing a lot are um, cultivating and developing uh, security personnel. And that's a thing that we kind of also, you know, helped try to push uh, was the, you know, kind of the thought of of having these really sharp uh, threat analysts uh, uh, be able to understand and interpret the data that they were actually looking at, and then ultimately be able to take steps defensively, um, you know, to to take care of their of their nation, yeah. <laughs> frankly. And uh, yeah, I think and and Dima, I'd like to get your perspective on on that as well. I was wondering if you could talk about how Ukraine was able to improve, uh, you know, that their, their overall posture and the kind of challenges and hurdles that uh, Ukraine had to overcome in order to to get there. Uh, so there is a fairly large number of different standards of information security methodologies uh, for effective interaction, uh, information exchange, etc. And uh, government uh, agency, agencies, uh, of course, applied them in their work. And uh, after they uh, were faced with uh, really overwhelming uh, flow of incoming information that required a mandatory response, all the processes were organically uh, left to the best of them. And everything... Um, that in any way slowed down the response was optimized. Speaking of uh, obstacles or hardless in very simple words, I will say that everyone was uh, well aware of the seriousness of cyber attacks. And uh, as far as I know, they, uh, there was no need to ask uh, anyone uh, to stay longer at work, not to leave uh, tasks unfinished, etc. And everyone worked and continues to work with uh, without sparing themselves putting the information protection of the state of the Ukraine in the first place. And uh, most importantly, the various governmental agencies uh, really started working uh, together in close working groups, not uh, competing uh, with each other, but uh, really working together. Yeah. This reminds me, I hope you won't mind me mentioning this because I know he's watching, but this reminds me of a tweet that um, our director of threat intelligence, Matt Only, um, tweeted a couple of weeks ago where he said, um, cybersecurity is not a technology problem. Uh, it's a human problem and it will be solved by human beings because, um, well, I'll, I'll clean up the language a little bit, but but humans care. It's a family show. <laughs> human beings care. Um, and what you just said there reminded me of that um, about human beings collectively <clears throat> coming together to get what needs to be done. Um, Dima, if I could ask you a little bit more about this, I'd, I'd love to know, could you summarize what are the things that Ukraine has done right to help keep their systems running and operational? 
So uh, among the many things that was done right, uh, in my opinion, coordination with uh, partners and uh, proper cyber threat intelligence uh, information sharing uh, played one of the key roles in successfully uh, resisting cyber attacks. Uh, effective processing and systematization of uh, TI threat information, victim notifications, and uh, multi-layer confirmation of problem resolutions with follow-ups uh, for constituencies uh, has become a winning strategy in the end. The amount of information that uh, CRTA, uh, Ukrainian uh, governmental computer emergency response team, has processed uh, and continues to process, combining uh, all these uh, with public information they provide is impressive. Uh, how uh, the state cyber protection center responsible for all critical infrastructure monitoring and resilience uh, acting is inspiring. And uh, last but not least, uh, Cyber Police uh, Department of National Police of Ukraine. Uh, different units starting from uh, forensic uh, unit uh, to individual special agents, their work truly uh, influenced. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, Ashley and, and, and JJ, maybe you could come on this as well. Can you recap the the Talos response to the invasion and and how we responded on a global level? It's quite a big question, but um, could you could you recap for the audience um, what you know in those first few days what how Talos responded to the invasion? Yeah, um, I think <clears throat> we were realistically we had actually been running hot. Uh, for a solid two months leading up to the actual invasion. Um, we had observed a distinct increase in activity. Um, and certainly from a kinetic perspective, um, we, as with the rest of the world, were, were very closely tracking the situation in terms of troops amassing on the border, um, you know, training exercises, if you will, um, and, and all of the things that were occurring um, and, and tying that together with other intelligence that we had, as well as direct observations. Um, so we, we had started, again, a solid two months prior to the actual invasion, uh, working um, with other organizations globally, uh, as well as inside of Ukraine, uh, to, to identify threats as early on as we were able to, um, to you know, shut down infrastructure as aggressively as we could, kind of all of the things that, you know, that you want to do, but doing so in a much more aggressive manner, uh, given the increase in tempo that we we had observed or were observing at the time. Uh, and then once the invasion actually occurred, um, we, we needed to spin up additional capability, right? Cisco as a whole um, from you know, from Chuck down, uh, made the decision that we were supporting Ukraine, um, that we were uh, certainly uh, condemning Russian actions, uh, and that, you know, we were going to do what we needed to do to do the right thing, uh, which is a thing that, that we just do here at Cisco Talos, right? Um, and occasionally we get in trouble for that, but that's a whole separate conversation. Um, this is not one of those cases. Uh, <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, it, it became obvious early on that we needed to uh, create a much more um, structured uh, and larger scale team. And, and kind of at that point, 
um, we identified kind of three different distinct lines of effort um, so that people inside of Cisco as a whole could contribute because there was an overwhelming <laughs> response um, when we put out a request of, hey, you know, we're going to do this thing. We need help doing it because it's a massive effort. Um, <clears throat> and, and we also knew that people, frankly, just wanted to help again because it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, so we, we started kind of these three different lines of effort, one being kind of this OSINT effort uh, where basically anybody in Cisco uh, could join a specific channel and provide um, open source information and intelligence that they had identified in any media source, on the dark web, any of these places, right? The idea is to just start collecting this information so that we can then take that to our uh, actual geopolitical and uh, linguist uh, specialists uh, so that they can curate it and distill out the really useful stuff uh, for their analysis, right? Um, and 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 then, of course, there's a direct monitoring piece, which I think uh, Ashley will speak to here in just a second, um, where, you know, we, we put the call out and said, hey, any Ukrainian organization uh, that needs help, you can have our stuff for free. And if you really need help, we'll help you monitor it. We'll help augment your personnel. Uh, we'll help highlight and flag critical things as we observe them. Um, because certainly you've got much more serious things to worry about from a kinetic perspective, right? Yeah. Um, certainly cyber impacts kinetic in a major way or has the capability to these days, right? Everything is interconnected. We've got power stations, communications, um, all the different critical infrastructure uh, sectors, if you will, uh, that that can impact um, a, a fighting force, Right. Uh, and can have significant impact, certainly on morale. Um, but yeah, I could talk for hours about this stuff. So, um, and and then there was uh, kind of the other third um, kind of third uh, uh, mission that we that we had in terms of what we were doing. And, and I already talked about it a little bit, but that's kind of the geopolitical piece of it, right? Um, and again, that larger effort was feeding down into those analysts. Um, so it's kind of intertwined with the OSINT bit, I guess, but um, a little more involved, uh, certainly. So um, I'll, I'll stop now, Ashley. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Just before Ashley um, uh, talks, uh, just to, uh, for anyone who's not aware, Chuck that uh, JJ mentioned is Chuck Robbins, our, our CEO. JJ's on first name, first name basis. I'm not, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So just in case anyone didn't know, that's Chuck Robbins. Um, uh, Ashley, could you um, talk about your perspective in terms of our response? Yeah. Uh, so on that note, um, I, I think when uh, the news broke of the invasion uh, in February, um, it, it was a consensus throughout Cisco coming down from the top of the CEO. You know, we want to help in any way that we can. And so we made this offering that JJ mentioned uh, of offering our security products for free to any Ukrainian organization that wanted to, to deploy those. Um, what we found is that we had actually a, a tremendous uptake for that offering, particularly of um, what JJ mentioned, that that third aspect of actually having Talos monitor those security products. And the, the reason we wanted to make that an offering is because those security products do a really good job of detecting a lot of um, kind of the day to day. But I think when you are involved in warfare, you know, there's an aspect of things that are new that are outside of the realm of what's been seen before. 
And so this this 24-7 threat hunting operation was born out of a desire to monitor uh, those the activity that's happening on those deployments and make sure that we are 100% giving our Ukrainian partners any uh, help that we can. And so this was quite the task because it scaled up very, very rapidly. You know, we weren't quite sure what the adoption of that was going to be. And then it became uh, very much well adopted. Uh, and so to really sort of efficiently and effectively help to the best of our ability, we actually built out a structured program around this. And so we we put out a call for volunteers throughout Talos. Um, at first, we we were asking mostly for people with threat hunting experience. But what we found is that we were actually able to get people with a variety of security research backgrounds from all across Talos. And we ended up with about 50 volunteers that are actively monitoring uh, those hunters are working in these smaller groups that are assigned a, a portion of uh, our partners. And they're really looking to become as familiar as possible with their environment so we can monitor for any deviations outside of that sort of baseline of activity. Uh, those hunters um, are, are then able to sort of work free of any kind of obstruction. And JJ and I tag team the operations and technical aspects of making sure that you know, these hunters can do their job. They don't have to worry about sort of any kind of like bureaucracy or reporting or the the boring paperwork that goes along with making sure your bases are covered. Uh, and we've had the the privilege as part of this program to really work with our Ukrainian partners directly. I would say that's been the the most unique aspect for this program, but also the the most worthwhile or rewarding aspect. Um, I, I think in security research, as a researcher, you don't often get to work directly with your customer. And so to be able to actually work with these partners and, and kind of clarify that gray area uh, that tends to come up in hunting where something seems, activity seems suspicious, but we aren't able to ask the customer necessarily, you know, is this intentional activity or is this, you know, something you don't know is going on. And so being able to really work in that gray area, clarify with partners, monitor for any behavior that's even slightly suspicious, that's really allowed us to, to kind of deepen these relationships. And it's been really successful to this point. Uh, JJ mentioned we also have OSINT channels going um, that have pulled volunteers from across Cisco. We actually have about 750 people working in that group. And so really the, the volunteer effort from throughout Cisco has been amazing. Um, you know, that's a that's a global operation at this point. And so it's really this project has really sort of blown up to a, a size that I don't think we anticipated. But because of, of that volunteer effort, we're really able to, to contribute, I think, in what is hopefully a, a meaningful way. Great, thank you. Um, I'll probably ask you a little bit more about the threat hunting units um, a little a little later because I think our audience um, and defenders across the world um, could take a lot of um, best practice advice from the from the things that you've discovered and the challenges that you've overcome with those units. So we'll come back to that in a, in a second. Um, Dima, I'd like to ask you. Um, on a human level, what are the things that you would like people to know about what has happened and what is still happening in Ukraine? So uh, since uh, the war has not yet ended uh, in victory for Ukraine, uh, the same applies to the war in cyberspace. Uh, cyber warfare is ongoing and uh, everyone needs to be well prepared uh, to react to threats, uh, to be careful and cautious. Try to rely uh, only on official sources. Uh, avoid any anonymously published information. Help uh, spread the rumors. 
Uh, speaking about information security, I highly recommend to follow official recommendations of cyber police and state special communication service of Ukraine. They publish a lot of important and useful information that will help you to protect yourself. Uh, don't forget to check uh, the Talos blog as we work uh, very, very tightly with uh, mentioned uh, agencies uh, and other partners uh, protecting more than uh, 30 critical infrastructure objects uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, talusintelligence.com, that is a single source of truth of um, everything that we are adding about um, what we know about the cybersecurity activities in Ukraine. So if you don't subscribe to that already, um, please, please do check that out. Um, same question, actually, for, for, for Ashley and JJ on the, on the human side of things. What would you like our audience to know, be aware of about specifically the Ukrainian response? Um, might kind of talk about the cybersecurity aspect uh, in a little bit, but I want to talk about the human side of things first. Sure, I can start with this. Um, I, I think from our perspective, one of the, the biggest challenges throughout this uh, process is that as the war has drawn on, um, you know, this is a, a volunteer effort. This is something that our folks are choosing to do throughout Cisco and Talos, uh, in addition to their regular job responsibilities. And I, I think that managing burnout as we continue this effort has really become important. And so we, this is a, a live program. This is something that we're evolving as, as it goes. Um, and we have really been able to kind of watch that and act in such a way that we're able to change the structure of the program to make sure that we can continue to sustain our effort instead of burning our folks out early. And so some of the changes we've made um, in include some automation. And so we've developed automation to kind of give our hunters leads to go off of. Um, and that has helped. We also, you know, encourage our folks as much as possible. If you need time away, because this is a very critical thing, oftentimes we're working weird hours. Um, it's it's time sensitive work. And so there can be this sense of um, urgency and that that can be very tiring. And so anytime someone feels that they need to step away, you know, we rotate people in and out. It's totally OK to take breaks. And I think in the beginning, this is something that especially JJ and myself found really difficult because this is something uh, to quote again, Matt Olney, uh, this is something that I think many feel is worth burning out over. Um, but, you know, even if even if you do feel that way, burning out does not allow you to continue to sustain your efforts. And so that's sort of a, a one and done thing where if you grind yourself to the point of no return, then you can't continue to, to help, uh, especially as this continues to draw on for months and months. And, you know, we don't really know when the, the end um, point will be. And so we, we really restructured the program as much as we can to continue to sustain that effort. Um, and I think it's been a really good lesson in managing, you know, the people that are involved from the volunteer side, making sure that they're taken care of as much as possible. Definitely. JJ, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. I think, <clears throat> you know, I think Ashley hit on the major points. Um, it is, this is a very fluid program for us. And it's something that um, we haven't traditionally done right? We have a lot of expertise, people who are really good at threat hunting, people who are really good um, at, you know, finding the weird thing using magic math that I don't and never will understand. Um, people who are really good at understanding and know the geopolitics of the region. But we've never conducted a direct, intense, uh, and focused effort like this across all of Talos. Uh, and, and certainly, 
the stakes have never been the same, right? Um, and I think that there is a lot of emotional taxation kind of on top of all of the all of the hours that are spent and all of the focus uh, that is taken. <clears throat> and that's a thing that, you know, that we need to keep in mind. And it's certainly a thing that I try to watch out for because it's um, it's also challenging to understand the impact sometimes, right? And and one of the things that we really try to highlight is the the actual impact that that they probably had, <laughs> and, and it's hard to describe that. But you know, when you're monitoring some type of critical infrastructure and you detect an attack early on, and you're able to evict the adversary early on. Um, you know, does that mean that, that you kept power on for an entire city, potentially uh, a military installation um, or, or other deployed military units uh, that, you know, uh, are powering uh, defensive capabilities um, and, and protecting the, the general public? Um, you know, does that mean that you're helping sustain uh, a better state of morale for the general public and, and certainly for the fighting forces as well? Um, so, you know, we try to talk through these things and <clears throat> and relay the the impact that these actions are certainly having, but will never be observed, which is how you want your job to run, you know, when you're doing this type of a thing. Um, and and so really trying to highlight the wins and the, the positive impact is a, is a significant thing. And, and certainly <clears throat> there's a lot of emotional investment um, kind of on top of this emotional taxation because we do have personnel uh, in country, right, in harm's way um, there to, to, to fight the good fight, if you will. Um, and, and those personnel have had... Um, you know, their families kind of torn apart, so to speak, because, you know, for certainly for good reason, um, Ukraine has has is not allowing military age males to leave right now. Um, so, you know, families have left and military age males have have stayed behind um, and, and gone to fight kinetically, continue to fight electronically. Uh, and, and, you know, bearing this all in mind as we hunt is is. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't even really describe it, right? I just can't. Um, <clears throat> but it's uh, the human side of this is is the biggest piece, certainly, um, and and making sure that everybody is as safe as they possibly can be, and is um, uh, emotionally as well as physically, certainly, um, is a is a big deal, and it's it's a it's a challenge uh, and, and something that I think about on a daily basis. You know, how do we, how do we make things better? How do we keep people um, in as high spirits as we can and, and maintain a high level of, of morale? And, and, you know, again, to Ashley's points, we've restructured teams to try and help focus on that. We've, we've restructured teams to, to try and help um, reduce burden. We've automated things to reduce burden. So, you know, there's a whole lot going into this from a making the job easier perspective uh, all the way to, you know, kind of the more impactful, um, what has my impact been trying to relay that and, and, and giving people the breaks that they need um, or, or even the resources just to talk to somebody, right. If they need to talk to somebody kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Thank you for talking about that. I think we've talked about this, quite a lot with good reason um, and Ashley you mentioned on the security stories podcast a few months ago the difficulty that you had with you know putting your laptop down at 
God knows what time of day um, and not being in a war zone and, and finding it a bit of a, a struggle to sort of adapt to that reality. I don't know if you want to uh, talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's, it is, uh, it is strange. I, I think it's a bit surreal. You know, we, we have people in region and those people are, are very much in harm's way. And so from my perspective, I, I'm not in harm's way. I, I'm very much invested in the goings on of the conflict from a, a cyber perspective and from a hunting perspective and from an operational perspective with uh, managing the the operations on the Talos side. But when I close my laptop and, and I walk away from it, I, I am not in physical danger. You know, I go about my day to day life and that is something, you know, I'm fortunate for that, but it's also something that's very weird. Um, and so, you know, in, kind of handling that, um, those emotions, you know, it is really helpful, I think, to talk to someone. Um, for me, it was a professional, it was actual therapy, but for other people, it may be, you know, a trusted contact or, or whatever. But, um, you know, it, it is a, it is a strange thing, I think, in the security world to deal with such heavy topics, and they are all, you know, digital in the computer in front of you, and they're not necessarily in the real world, and it can be a surreal experience. And so, um, you know, I, of course, recognize, you know, again, I'm not in physical danger and I'm certainly not, you know, the, the one who is, you know, sheltering from bombs uh, in Ukraine. But, you know, if you are a security researcher and you feel that sense of surrealism and you're struggling with it, I would really encourage you to, to seek some, someone to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Um, actually, let's stay with you for, for a little bit. I mentioned I'd like to dig a little deeper about the threat hunting program structure, how you structured it to support our people and um, uh, the critical infrastructure in Ukraine to the best of our ability. Could you talk um, about some of the challenges that you've encountered along the way and, and how you've overcome those with the threat hunting uh, program? Yeah, I think the first the first challenge was volume, uh, volume of data specifically. And so this is a very large deployment across a lot of different endpoints. Uh, and, and that data set is enormous. And so being able to effectively determine how we're going to go about looking through that data, especially when we're looking for, you know, you could say it's a needle in a haystack, but I feel like that's not even enough to describe the, the, the issue of data. Um, we're, we're looking for something new that hasn't been seen before that's indicative of an attack that we know nothing about. And so we're really, you know, stretching our you know, our knowledge and our capacity and really trying to to find those things as early as possible. And so, as I, I mentioned, we we do some level of automation and that's automation in-house on top of the automation that these products do. Um, and those kind of give us a, a starting point. But I would also say over time, as our hunters became more familiar with the environments that they were looking at, you know, you're kind of able to establish a baseline of what is normal. Um, you know, there's a lot of weird things that happen on people's environments that you would think are indicative of an attack or but are just normal, weird behavior that is typical for that environment. And so as, as time goes on, our hunters were able to, to really kind of figure out where that line was and establish that normal. Uh, I think also in the beginning, like I said, we had that problem of scale and over time we've been able to handle that better. And now it's an issue of sustainability where we're really, you know, looking to continue these efforts as much as possible. And we don't know when there will be an endpoint. It's really hard, I think, to define when things are finished. And so being able to continue these efforts and sustain this program as long as possible, mostly centers around making sure that we're managing burnout on the people side. And so 
as part of that, we were really trying to drive engagement, making sure that our hunters feel uh, rewarded and valued and know that their actions are really directly contributing to this effort. Um, you know, making sure we're rotating people in and out, making sure that we're offering resources if anyone needs help. Um, you know, it, it really is something that we're actively trying to do and improve as much as we can uh, throughout this process. And so it's very much a, a live program uh, that's changing very fluidly. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to some specific advice that you might have for other organizations implementing threat hunting programs. Um, but this is a question for everyone. Um, and going back to that um, Ukrainians have put in um, over the, the last few years, uh, longer than that, actually. Um, what would you say are the specific changes that they made that has had the biggest impact against the Russian aggression on the cybersecurity side? Um, question for anybody. Um, I, I guess I can start. <clears throat> I think, um, again, kind of as I had alluded to, or not alluded to, as directly said <laughs> uh, earlier, <laughs> Um, you know, they've they've done a good job of learning about their adversary because the adversary, you know, Russia has been has been picking on them for so long um, and picking on them is probably not the right term to use. It's been more aggressive than that. But, uh, you know, I think that from a change perspective, what I would I have observed um, uh, since the invasion uh, is is more. um kind of interagency cooperation and information sharing, right? Um, and certainly also the um, the increase in assistance from uh, the rest of the world, right? Whether it be um, nation state or private company, right? There, there are a lot of um, private companies out there that are uh, certainly helping, you know, I, I, I can think of so many off the top of my head that are offering free assistive services. Um, so I think, but, but, you know, in terms of what the Ukrainian people themselves have done, I, I really think it's, it's kind of information sharing, right. Um, and, and more cooperation between the different agencies involved and, and frankly, even between um, the organizations, you know, the private entities, um, critical infrastructure, things of that nature, the, the willingness to work aggressively with um, the outside organizations, whether it be, you know, their own nation state or whether it be a private organization that's that's coming in and, and offering assistive uh, measures. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Ashley, I think we have a, a fellow data fan uh, watching, <laughs> uh, just seen in the comments. Must be... Uh, great to kind of compare all the different data sets of, of uh, all of the different sites. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit about that in terms of um, you mentioned how it's important to find like what is normal. So how when you're looking at all of this data from all of these different sites, how are you sorting through what is the most important um, finding that what isn't a needle in a haystack, but even even more hard to find? It's an interesting problem. Um, it, it's a problem, I think, that's good to have, to have too much data. I'd rather have too much than too little. Uh, but it also represents challenges, like you said, with finding what is normal. And so there are, there are some ways that you can help yourself do that a little more effectively. Um, we, we've assigned these, these organizations to different groups, our small hunting groups. 
according to the the vertical that these customers are in. So if there's any similarities between their function or the type of data that they would see, anything like that. Um, and that really helps our hunting teams when they're looking at similar data sets to be able to establish that normal uh, more easily. I think also, you know, there is some automation that our the product, the Cisco product that we're using um, allows us to use to able to help establish that norm. Um, there's actually some interesting graphics that go along with that, that will kind of give you like a heat map, which is a very nice visual. Um, but you know, it takes time and familiarity, I would say there's no easy way to establish that baseline. And so it really requires uh, an eye that's somewhat knowledgeable about the environment. And I would say from a, from a hunting perspective, um, there's a lot of, I mentioned weird behavior that may or may not be normal. There's a lot of that in the hunting world. And so really being able to, to dig and be able to pivot and Google even <laughs> to figure out, you know, is this behavior that's common? Is it not? What does this program do? Um, you know, I think a lot of threat hunting in general is trial and error and really being able to to stretch and, and try and figure out what is this and what is it doing. Um, at, at Talos, we're very fortunate to have a, a plethora of resources that allow us to figure that out. Um, but even at a less resourced organization, being able to find things and answer questions like that will really help threat hunting in general. So, um, you know, too much data is a problem, but it's a good problem to have. And I think that that combination of, of automation and also having really talented hunters that are able to ask those questions and find answers is, is really yep. beneficial there. Great. Um, I want to spend maybe the last 10 minutes or so um, talking about uh, giving an update on what we're seeing threat-wise in the landscape um, and giving advice for the organizations listening in terms of what they need to be aware of. Um, so we're still seeing a constant barrage of infra-stealers, um, credential harvesting efforts. Um, JJ, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, GoMet. We saw that in the timeline. Um, what is that and, and why is it important? Yeah, Um so uh, I, I guess <clears throat> I'll start by just describing what it is. It's a um, it's a Trojan slash remote access tool uh, written in Go. Um, it's actually base source code is publicly available on GitHub. It has been for some time. Uh, oddly, though, we hadn't seen it used in the wild very much um, at all, even since its code was published uh, and until just recently. Um, and it's. What's interesting about it is it's it is a relatively basic tool um, capable of running kind of what you would expect, kind of arbitrary commands as well as predefined set of commands. Um, but it also has this other notion, this capability of being able to daisy chain. Daisy chaining itself is um, I would have you know two instances, for example, if I were an attacker of GoMet running uh, inside of an environment. One instance would be placed on a machine that has communications to the internet, is, is able to talk out to the internet. That instance would be the daisy chain um, kind of pivot point, if you will, right? Um, or proxy, you know, to, to use a term that we're probably all more familiar with. And <clears throat> it would then relay communication from another internal, maybe presumed to be more secure host um, that is typically not allowed to talk to the internet and cannot in fact directly talk to the internet. Um, but now it's able to communicate through this other host back to the internet and whatever sensitive information may exist on it or other sensitive parts of the network uh, that may exist um, that it can talk to, you know, the, the adversary now potentially has access to or can at least start to, to de develop access and, and gain access into those more sensitive parts of the network. Um, 
you know, I, when I think about that, I think about organizations, um, specifically around critical infrastructure where, you know, they've got an OT environment that, um, classically can't, can't talk to the internet. Right. Um, but it can talk to other certain internal hosts that they use as bastion hosts, for example, um, or that they forgot they opened up a little hole to, to be able to talk to a host for troubleshooting, right? We, we unfortunately commonly see that. Um, but I'm not suggesting that we see that in Ukraine right now, but that's a common thing that we've seen over the years, certainly. Um, the I think the important thing, or the, the the other more interesting thing to me is is where we found the GoMed activity and, and, and kind of where we're continuing to see it. Um, and it's at a software development firm um, that, that's not going to be named. Um, but the, you know, the customer list, of course, is very interesting um, and would allow, if the appropriate level of access were gained by an adversary, would allow um, for access, potentially access anyway, um, to a, a number of critical customers providing um, what I would consider relevant intelligence to a um, to a force, uh, even from a kinetic perspective, right? Um so obviously we have very serious concerns there from a kind of a supply chain targeting perspective. And, and if I'm being honest, um, when I look at some of the historic things that have happened in region, it, it makes perfect sense to me um, that, that we're going to start to see targeting such as that. Right. I mean, I, I expect that to happen globally, not just in Ukraine. Um, right. And, and we've seen more of that over the last several years Um you know, going back to even the like the big solar winds um, extravaganza, if you will. Um, so I think that you know uh, we're we're going to see this type of targeting. I certainly think it's in line with espionage at this point, and and trying to gain that intelligence again um, to help support uh, certainly kinetic efforts, but uh, also continued cyber efforts in region. Um, and for anyone who wants to read a little bit more about um, GoMet, we've just put a link to a blog um, on our social channels. So if you um, take a view of that, we'll go into a bit more detail about that as well. Um, so last last couple of questions. Um, for the defenders out there watching, what are the lessons from Ukraine um, that can apply to their own environments? Um, obviously, Thankfully, not everyone is facing, you know, a determined nation state attacking them. Um, but the, the the TTPs have many applications. So I was wondering, what are your main recommendations? Um, Ashley, maybe we can start with you on that one. Yeah, my my recommendation, I think, would be from an operational standpoint. Um, one of the reasons that our program has been so successful from a hunting perspective is because we prioritize and optimize our hunters time so that they are only threat hunting. And specifically, they're only hunting for things that are of critical priority. So, um, you know, they're, they're not kind of burdened with the, the day to day of, you know, kind of, um, typical alerts, things that, that are of low impact. Um, you know, they're, they're really trying to find, uh, behavior that is indicative of a targeted attack. And so by freeing up their time to really spend it on those difficult problems, we've been able to be successful. And I think many, many analysts and security teams that are under-resourced find themselves spending most of their time on problems that are of low impact. Um, 
So if you are uh, in a position where you're you're running an analyst team or or you have a security team that is really burdened by a large number of alerts, then you should probably consider prioritizing their time so that they're able to to better use it and, and really work on the things of high impact to your organization. Great. Um, Dima, anything you'd like to, to add to that? I think uh, everything was already added. And uh, I strongly suggest, again, to check the Talos blog as uh, we follow in the situation together with our partners and uh, adding uh, different uh, countermeasures that could be applied to partners and uh, partners' environment and uh, commercial companies in Ukraine. So, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, JJ, anything you'd like to talk about uh, from a defender standpoint? Um, I think I would I would just kind of echo and, and reinforce um, Ashley's statement, right? You... If, if you have too much to look at, um, you, you're going to get complacent and you're not going to look at it. So, you know, filter it out to the really relevant stuff, um, potentially even against just the really relevant targets, which, which you know, means you need to assess uh, or maybe even reassess um, what the relevant targets are that an adversary may be looking at in your environment. You know, one of the things that we did um, in our automation was you know, we're really trying to just flag, for lack of a better phrase, those really damning events, right? Something that uh, has a high rate of true positive, something that when we see it uh, immediately, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I'm like, oh, yeah, we, that's, you know, um, unless there's a red teamer doing red teaming things, um, which there certainly should not be in Ukraine right now, Um Right then, <laughs> and it's good to even catch the red teamers. Right, you want to catch the red teamers. So, I mean, let's be honest. Everybody loves catching the red teamers. Um, but I, I think that's kind of kind of what it is. And and make sure you're taking care of your people. Right. Um, try to really pay attention to um, any type of signs of burnout and and openly talk about it. Right. Um, as a team and in direct one on ones. Right. Um, be be very open and and uh and honest about you know what what expectations are and and if there's any type of burnout or um any type of of extra stress that needs to be dealt with right you, you want to deal with that early on um so that it doesn't actually turn into a, a problem uh, mm -hmm. is i guess kind of yeah that's probably all i would add to that yeah, so I have my own version of a red team member at the moment, which is my cat trying to treat my screen as a scratching post. So I'm so sorry for the gibbering. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, before we close, uh, Ashley, you wanted to um, uh, pitch something. Um, take it away. Yeah. Um, just before we close, if you are an organization in Ukraine who's interested in having Talos help you uh, secure your organization and to participate in this threat hunting program, uh, please reach out via any of our social channels or, or email or any other way that you can contact us. Uh, we are offering our security products for free. Um, it's really important to us to continue to support Ukraine throughout the duration of the conflict. So as long as this goes on, you know, we're going to run this program and we would really encourage others to, to reach out and join. Perfect. Okay, well, uh, 
on that note, um, I think I think we'll I think we'll close. If you have any um, other questions or anything that you'd like to reach out to the team about, um, probably sending us a, a DM on Twitter is um, one of the fastest way to reach us. Um, definitely welcome that. And um, if there's anything else that we can help you with, um, please feel free to get in touch. Um, thank you very much for joining us on Ukraine Independence Day. Um, to stay up to date on any threat related activities, um, follow the uh, Talos blog, so talosintelligence.com. You'll always have the latest information on there so with that thank you very much to jj to dima and to ashley um thank you for watching do take care and we'll see you soon